Imagine being a young ensign, given the honour of carrying your regiment's colours into your first big battle, and then, after a disaster not of your making, you get singled out and found guilty at a court-martial. You can't handle the truth! Well, that's the story of today's British soldier. Stay tuned to find out more and to discover how he bounced back from this terrible first battle and ended up being considered by his biographer as one of the greatest British generals of all time. Do you know who it is yet? If you love British military history then this is the channel for you so please do like subscribe and leave a comment as I'd really love to see this channel and the podcast grow and to be able to keep sharing these amazing stories. In today's episode I'm talking about the life of Air Coote, a contemporary of Robert Clive and a man whose military prowess saw his East India Company forces defeat many foes including the French and cement Britain's position on the Indian subcontinent in the 18th century. So let's start at the beginning. Coote, like so many great British soldiers, was actually Irish, a Protestant of French ancestry born near Limerick in 1726. In 1744, he joined the 27th Regiment of Foot, later known as the Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers. The army at this time was unhappy, corrupt, and had been left to rot. It was a shadow of Marlborough's force that had served him so well during the wars of Spanish succession a generation earlier. It was with the 27th, also known at the time as Blakeney's Regiment, that Coote travelled to Scotland to fight the Jacobites. His first taste of action was at the indecisive Battle of Falkirk, fought on the 17th of January 1746. It was a rainy winter's afternoon. Coote was in charge of his regiment's colours and so far the regiment had done little during the battle. But suddenly the cavalry charged the Scots in front of them and the day was about to become much more interesting. Coote's biographer, Colonel E. W. Shepherd, now takes up the story. There burst forth a fierce squall of rain blowing right in his face and rendering his men's muskets useless at the very time when they were to be needed. There was an outburst of fire in front and he saw horses rearing and stumbling and troopers pitching from their saddles and then a mob of fierce half-naked clansmen rose and threw themselves into the melee stabbing at the horses' bellies and dragging their riders down by the long skirts of their dragoon coats. Then, with a thunder of flying hooves and a chorus of cries of terror and exultation, fugitive horses and men and pursuing warriors swept down upon him and the hurriedly formed infantry in front. He could hardly hear a shot fired, for the surprise was complete, and the few muskets discharged missed fire. There was a brief ring and a clatter of bayonets and broadswords, and then he found himself carried away and almost thrown down by a press of running men, friend and foe intermingled. Hampered by the wet and flapping colours, he was swept back, an all-too-conspicuous figure among the horde of fugitives streaming off the lost field. Coote was one of the officers singled out and accused of cowardice for his actions. The generals were looking for a scapegoat, and he fitted the bill. Luckily, for the future of the British Empire in India, he was found not guilty of cowardice, but was found guilty of the lesser crime of breaching the 14th Article of War by misbehaving and going to Edinburgh with the colours. Seems unfair, doesn't it, that this young man should be singled out for such harsh punishment? 
especially given that there was a strong argument that he only left the field to save the colours, something that others have done and been awarded a Victoria Cross for. I'm thinking of the Battle of Isandwana. But Ku was made of tough stuff. He survived in the army, and we lose sight of him somewhat over the next two years. But he did go on to serve with the 6th Dragoons in Germany, then exchanged to the 37 foot, and then in 1755 as a captain to the 39th Regiment of Foot, later known as the Dorset Regiment. And it was with the Dorsets that Coote really began to make a name for himself. In the summer of 1756, Captain Air Coote and his detachment of the 39th landed in Madras. This made them the first Royal Regiment of British troops ever to serve in India. It was a difficult and dangerous posting in those days. With sickness and the climate just as likely to kill you as a musket ball or spear. The 1750s were a remarkable time in the history of India. The Mughals, whose empire was once magnificent, were in decline, leaving local semi independent rulers to manage things as best as they could. There was political chaos, with assorted Rajas and Nawabs fighting and plotting against one another. It was into this vacuum that the British East India Company, the French, the Dutch and the Portuguese all hoped to expand their power and influence. One powerful local ruler and a man who decided to take on the British was Siraj Uddawula, the Nawab of Bengal. His forces kicked the British out of Calcutta and his men were responsible for the infamous Black Hole of Calcutta incident. If you're interested to know more about this era, especially the Black Hole of Calcutta and the Battle of Plassey, then please go back to Season 2 of the Redcoat History Podcast where we take a really deep dive into the subject. For now I'll try and keep things short as I want to keep the story focused on Coote and keep it moving forward quickly. As well as the ongoing war now with Siraj Ud-Dawula, there was another bitter power struggle going on at this time between the British army officers and those of the East India Company, i.e. Robert Clive, a.k.a. Clive of India. Royal officers weren't keen to serve under company officers. And so because of that, Coote's company of regular British Army infantry found themselves tasked as marines attached to the Royal Navy under the command of Admiral Watson. It was in this role that they were heavily involved in Clive's campaign to recapture the city of Calcutta and punish the Nawab. They were present at the attack on the fort at Budge Budge and then the advance into Calcutta. When Fort William surrendered, there was a confusing and potentially career-ending incident for Coote. Here's another excerpt from Shepherd's book. There now ensued a sudden and undignified quarrel between the leaders of the expedition. Watson ordered Coote to go ashore and take command of the fort. Clive, however, feeling that this prerogative should have been his, strode in and asked in no very civil terms by what right Watson had appointed one so inferior in rank to himself and declared that he would take command and would put Coote under arrest if he objected. The irascible admiral took fire at once on hearing of this, denounced Clive for overstepping his power and cancelling his superior orders and briskly announced that if Clive did not clear out of the fort he would be fired out. Clive hotly declined to comply but just as an impasse seemed to have been reached a peacemaker in the person of one of the warship's captains persuaded the two bellicose commanders to an agreement that Watson himself should come ashore and take personal charge of the fort. This he duly did and then triumphantly handed over the keys to Drake the new civil governor of Calcutta. That's an awkward situation wasn't it? Imagine Coote caught in the middle. Shortly afterwards, Coote and his men were at the forefront of a battle with the French at Chandanagar. 
And then, on the 23rd of June 1757, at the infamous and well-known Battle of Plassey. Plassey is considered a key turning point for the British in India. Once again, the small army of redcoats took on the huge force of Siraj Udawula and his French allies. The battle nearly didn't happen though. Shortly before, Clive and the majority of his officers had lost their nerve and decided against giving battle. But Coote was a dissenting voice and argued in favour of fighting. And eventually, Clive came around to Coote's argument and decided to give battle after all. It was the right decision. One of the Nawab's key allies was a man called Mir Jafar. He had been convinced to turn against his commander and switch sides to the British mid-battle. Here is Coote's journal entry for the day of the battle, 23rd of June 1757. Quote, Soon after daybreak, we discovered the Nabob's army marching in two lines towards Plassey Grove, which we were in possession of, as if they intended to surround us, upon which we formed the line a few paces without the grove. They have strange turns of phrase in those days, don't they? The enemy took possession of the adjacent eminences with their cannon, which appeared to be irregularly supported by their horse and foot and a large detachment of their army commanded by Mir Madan, one of their chief generals, together with a body of about 40 Frenchmen with four pieces of cannon, lodged themselves within the bank of a tank. By the way, a tank is like a water storage area. Distant from us about 200 yards from whence and from the rest of their advanced posts, they began to cannonade us so briskly that it was advisable we should retire into the grove where we formed behind the ditch that surrounded it, our left being covered by Plassey House, which was close to the riverside. In this situation, we cannonaded each other till 12 o'clock. When the Colonel, Clive, came from Plassey House and called the captains together in order to hold a council of war, but changing his mind returned without holding one. The cannonading continued on both sides till about two o'clock when we could see the enemy retiring into their lines upon which Major Kilpatrick marched out with his division and took possession of the tank the enemy had quitted. Here the Colonel joined him and sent to the grove for another detachment upon which I marched out and joined him with my division. The Colonel then sent the King's Grenadiers and a Grenadier company of sepoys to lodge themselves behind a bank that was close upon the enemy's lines from whence they kept up a continual fire with their small arms and four pieces of cannon from the tank as we likewise did. Perceiving the enemy retire on all sides, I was ordered to march into their lines, which I entered without opposition. And so Bengal was finally completely under British control. And our man Air Coup had played a big part in that battle. I visited the battlefield of Plassey in 2006. Sadly, the ground is quite unrecognisable, at least to me, and there's little to see except there is still a small monument that stands, and I did find a sort of small informal museum in what looked like some sort of electricity substation. Very interesting. The victory at Plassey wasn't the end of the campaign, though. Coote and a detachment of about 800 men were then sent to pursue the remaining French forces. It was a difficult and thankless mission through difficult and unfriendly territory. Coote needed every ounce of his leadership skills to keep the expedition together, dealing with drunkenness and a virtual mutiny by his men who felt they were being pushed too far and too hard and still hadn't received the money they were owed. It's a common complaint among soldiers, especially at that time, that they were not paid regularly and on time as they should be. Eventually, despite Coote's best efforts, the French escaped and Coote was forced to return to Calcutta. Shortly afterwards, he sailed for England. 
His reports in London took the shine off Clive's glory. He pointed out that they weren't a string of triumphal victories, but instead Clive had relied on luck and the cooperation of Indian traitors. As you can imagine, this truthful telling of the story did cause a deep schism between Clive and Coote. Clive wasn't a good enemy to make. In fact, Clive was disgusted when, in 1759, 33-year-old Coote returned to India as commander of the 84th Regiment of Foot and was nominated to become commander-in-chief of British forces in Bengal. This position also entitled him to a seat on the council that ran things. Soon after his return to the subcontinent, Air Coote was to lead his forces at the decisive Battle of Wandiwash. What's that battle? I hear you say. Well, let's try and sum it up. The so-called Third Carnatic War had been rumbling on since before Plassey. But now the French forces in India were reinforced and on the offensive once more. Coote's timely arrival in the region at the head of two new royal regiments helped to turn the tide. On the 22nd of January 1760, the British and French forces clashed near the small town of Wandiwash, which is about a quarter of the way up the east coast of India. British forces numbered 1,900 white infantry, 2,100 sepoy infantry, 1,200 native cavalry and 26 guns. Coote's opposite number was Comte Thomas Arthur de Lally. He mustered around 7,000 men, about 2,500 of whom were Europeans, and around 3,000 Maratha cavalry. It's worth pointing out here that many historians credit the Battle of Plassey as the decisive event that brought about ultimate British rule over India. But it does seem actually the Battle of Wandiwash was equally, if not more important, as it finally broke the French attempts to challenge the British dominance in the subcontinent. You could argue it was this battle that won India for the British. It knocked the French out of the fight. For a cracking description of the battle, I'm returning back to Shepherd's book. At sunrise, having set his little army in motion towards Wandiwash, Coote, with an advanced guard of 200 horse and two sepoy companies, rode ahead to reconnoitre the enemy positions. Before him lay a wide, tree-dotted plain, baked hard and dry in the sun, admirable ground for cavalry, in which arm the enemy had a great superiority. To the north rose a rocky low ridge, streams from which drained down into a series of artificial tanks, water storage areas, in the centre of the plain, where lay the little fort which he, Coote, had come to relieve. To the left, as he looked at it, lay the main French infantry camp, while that of the French and the Maratha horse were well away to the right in lee of the hill range. It now ensued some brisk skirmishing between the British horse and the French videte, the noise of which brought the Marathas swarming out of their camp onto the plain. But two guns ordered up by Coote kept them at a distance and finally sent them galloping off. Meanwhile, the British advance guard took up positions to cover the deployment into the line of the main body a mile in the rear. Coote returned to it, and finding the men in great spirits and eager for battle, brought it forward to within two miles of Lally's camp. He rode forward again and found the opposing infantry strongly posted and ready for battle in front of the camp, while the Maratha horse hovered about, ready to fall on the British flanks as soon as the action should begin. Coote therefore shifted his army to take the ground to the west, so that its right flank should be covered by the ridge and he disposed his cavalry to guard his left and rear, while the baggage and its escort took shelter in some nearby villages. Lally, fearing to see his adversaries swing round past his left and into his rear, where they could offer battle with one flank covered by the ridge and the other by the fort, ordered his army to change front and move forward to a low bank which afforded some cover. 
He had his own regiment on the left of the line, the European Battalion of India in the centre, and the Regiment of Lorraine on the right, which was covered by the French and Maratha cavalry. Guns were posted between his frontline regiments, and the Sepoy infantry formed his second line. The left flank rested on a tank where some guns and a party of marines and sailors were posted. The cannonading, wrote Coote, now began to be smart on both sides, and upon seeing the enemy come briskly up, I ordered the army to march forward. The French horse threatened an attack on the British infantry's left and rear, but, caught by gunfire as they rode past their flank, they were charged by the British cavalry and driven away in disorder. The British infantry, advancing joyously, came within musket range of the French and opened a destructive fire, inflicting such severe losses that the French broke gallantly forward to meet them. The sepoy troops on both sides remained halted in the rear and the white units fought out between themselves the decisive battle for control of India. When we came within 60 yards of them, wrote Major Gordon of Coote's regiment of the 84th on the left of the British line, our platoons began to fire. I had the honour to lead the 84th against the Lorraine Regiment on their right, which was resolved to breakers, being as they said a raw young regiment. But we had not fired above four rounds before they went to the right about in the utmost confusion. Here perhaps, for the first time in history, the French formed a deep column of attack on a narrow front and were checked and broken up by the frontal and flanking fire of the thin, too deep British line. Meanwhile, away to the west, a lucky shot hit and blew up a French ammunition wagon near the tank on which Lally's left rested. There was a panic, and Coote took instant advantage of it by ordering Brereton and the 79 foot to swing left and carry the tank. There was a fierce tussle in which Brereton was struck down with a mortal wound. But Coote led up a sepoy unit to support of the 79th and the tank was secured. Guns were hurried up and the French left wing, smitten by this flanking fire, scattered in rout and, rolling in upon the already sorely tired centre, carried it off in flight. The French right wing had already been shaken and the sight of Major Monson and the 2nd British line coming up put it also to flight. About two o'clock, wrote Coote, their whole army gave way and ran towards their own camp. But finding we pursued, they quitted it and left us entire masters of the field, together with all their artillery, except three small pieces which they carried off. Our cavalry, being greatly fatigued, put it out of my power of pursuing the enemy as far as I could have wished. It was a brilliant victory that essentially removed the French threat in India permanently. Coote showed immense tactical skill at Wandiwash, and for the first time we hear of the British two-deep line of infantry taking on and crushing massed French formations. For those who have followed my Napoleonic Peninsula War season, you'll know that that became a common thing in Spain and Portugal particularly. The great historian of the British Army, Sir John Fortescue, said of Coote, In the matter of tactics on the field, he seems to have been one of the greatest masters of his own or any other time. The man was never so dangerous as when within range of cannon shot. If there was a weak point in an enemy's position, Coote hit it unnerringly and would contrive to draw the enemy out of his stronghold to fight him on his own ground. His power of manoeuvring masses of troops was marvellous. He could handle 10,000 men with the ease and precision of a sergeant drilling a squad in the barrack yard. And thus, in spite of the terrible encumbrance of followers and baggage, he would advance with perfect confidence into the midst of cavalry that outnumbered him by six to one with his infantry and artillery only. In other words, he was smart, he was brave, and he was a ballsy bugger. Not long after the battle, Coote returned to Britain, did a stint in Parliament, 
but the pull of the East was too much for him, and in 1779 he returned to become Commander-in-Chief of all company forces in India. A big job. It just shows, doesn't it, how much they respected what he'd achieved at Wandiwash. In this role, he was instrumental in the early victories of the Second Anglo-Mysore War. It was a war that, from my limited research, probably should and could have been avoided. Haider Ali seems to have been fair and open in his initial dealings with the company. But he was pushed into a conflict that he'd hoped to avoid. Coote's most notable battle of the war was the Battle of Porto Novo, fought on the 1st of July 1781. The British force, numbering more than 8,000 men that was under his command, defeated a force estimated at 40,000. Let's once more turn to Shepherd for a description of the battle. At 5am on the 1st of July, after a fierce rainstorm, the British army moved slowly northwards in two columns. Soon, it came within sight of the hostile position which, although extending across its whole front almost to the coast, did not quite reach it. A halt was now called under long-range hostile fire while Coote rode forward to carry out his usual meticulous reconnaissance of the ground. He decided to take advantage of the gap between the enemy's defences and the sea to gain Hyder's left flank and roll up his line. A low line of sandhills helped to conceal and shelter this movement, and a half-finished redoubt made it likely that a road of approach up to it had been made on the enemy's side, which would facilitate the attack. Accordingly, the army filed off in two columns to its right, the rear battalions of each with its guns facing left to cover the exposed flank. As soon as the sandhills afforded sufficient shelter, Stuart's second line took up position confronting the hostile centre and Monroe's line continued on to the north to strike Hyder's left wing. The Mysorean chief at once led his army out of its entrenchments, massed his infantry in front of Monroe's troops and flung all his cavalry against Stuart's small force. But all its attacks were shattered by the steady fire of the sepoys, while Monroe led his men forward in face of stubborn but diminishing resistance and a fierce cannonade. Hyder, who was sitting on a stool coolly watching the progress of the battle, sent all his remaining cavalry against the two British divisions. But now came an opportune naval intervention. The schooner HMS Intelligence opened fire on the horse attacking Stuart's flank, slew their leader and sent them scurrying off in panic under the belief that they lay under the fire of the whole British squadron. The mounted attack of Hyder's left met with no better fortune and the Mysorean chiefs urgently besought their monarch to order a retreat. For some time he refused to acknowledge defeat. But then a favourite servant lifted up his feet and drew on his slippers saying, we will beat them tomorrow, now we must mount and go. And his army began to fall back, at first slowly, then in disorder, increased by the steady advance of the pursuing British. The victory was quickly followed up by others, such as the Battle of Polyler, I think that's how you say it, and Schollinger. But despite his victories, Coote was now physically and mentally exhausted. For Europeans of the era, India was a tough place to work, destroying the bodies of all but the hardiest. Coote died on the 27th of April 1783, aboard ship travelling from Calcutta to Madras where he was hoping the better environment would help him to recover. It was the end of a tremendous and exciting life. But how good a general was Coote? His first biographer, Colonel Wiley, wrote of him, He had an extraordinary flair for detecting the weak points in his enemy's position. His stroke was well planned and aimed with deadly accuracy and he usually contrived to either attain his opponent's flank or rear by an echelon movement. 
the risk of which was diminished by the extraordinary ability he displays in handling troops on the field in the close formations of those times. His army was always hugely outnumbered, but he was never outmaneuvered. Good old Colonel Shepard goes one step further in his praise of Coote and believes him to be the third greatest British general of all time. He writes, Even among the British generals who have been most successful and attained the greatest name and fame in other theatres of war, Coote's position must be a very high one. Marlborough stands, of course, preeminent, and Wellington his indisputable second. But for the next place, Coote has a strong claim to be considered. Cromwell is usually thought of as the third in the trinity of great British captains, but he was first and foremost a cavalry leader. As a tactician, he was no more than competent, and as a strategist, inferior, whereas Coote was a master of both tactics and strategy. Wolfe owes his fame to one campaign not very skillfully conducted and one victory which gained on a plane which was his own only by adoption. He owes his fame which most unjustly stands higher than Coote's mainly to the opportuneness of his death in the moment of victory at Quebec. Apart from Wellington, the revolutionary and Napoleonic wars saw the appearance of no great British leaders. Coote's right to a very high place in our British general's ranking list seems substantial. Certainly no of us proved themselves possessed of more varied and admirable military qualities, end quote. But what do you think? Does he stand alongside Wellington and Marlborough? Let me know your thoughts in the comments, because this is something I'm always really interested in. 